Okay. Hello, everyone. Hello, friends, those watching live and, and those listening to the recording. Uh, a big welcome to Rabbi Maruf. It's a huge pleasure to have you with us again, and we're privileged and very excited uh, for today's shiur. I, I was re-watching some of the uh, last, well, it wasn't last week, but it was last week. It was the last class. Two weeks ago, yeah. Two weeks ago. Uh, and I and I noticed there were there were close to nearly one and a half thousand views uh, in just under two weeks. So uh, immensely popular shiur. Uh, and I think on that note, we can skip the introduction, as I doubt anyone has, has forgotten that class um, and the fabulous intro that, that Ohad gave. Uh, of course, you can rewatch that part as well. Um, the truth is, I, I just want to make mo- most of the time that we have with you. Uh, and so I want to pass on the mic and. We can get a head start and, and maximize your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, so, Bechavod Rav, uh, all yours. And what, what time's our ending time? Just so I have an idea of how to pace it. We're, we're flexible. We generally try to do it for the hour. Um, okay. Could be a little bit before and we do questions or a little bit after. Okay. It's up to you. Either way. Okay. So, we'll see how it goes. Maybe there'll be interesting questions. I mean, last time I remember that there were. Um, so the, uh, the concept was, you know, we had discussed uh, behind the scenes, the idea of having a, uh, kind of a series or, uh, uh, a mini series, uh, highlighting some fundamentals, what I, what I consider, uh, fundamentals in terms of a Sephardic approach to, to learning. And, um, in the previous year, we talked about approaches to Toashi Bichtav and particularly to, uh, the interpretation of, uh, of uh, a story or certain stories in Torah Shebikhtav where the Rambam in particular has a, uh, a unique approach. And it was a very, very, I thought it was a very fruitful uh, discussion. This, uh, the, the upcoming Shurim, Bezrat Hashem, will hopefully explore uh, other aspects of a Derech Limud, um, an approach to learning that uh, might be different from what you've been exposed to if you have a yeshiva background, might hopefully, I hope, uh, uh, might resonate with you, help you, uh, and, and maybe enrich your own learning wherever, what in, whatever institution uh, you might be learning or your own personal learning. So today what we're going to uh, be focused on is, uh, is studying mitzvot in the Torah Shebikhtav. And in my opinion, you know, we were going to jump to a discussion of halacha and take some examples of the Sephardic approach to interpreting halacha. But I, I thought, uh, I second-guessed myself and thought to myself, maybe that's rushing ahead a bit. Let's first look at the preliminary stage. Preliminary stage of understanding mitzvot is to understand how they emerge from Torah And one of the things that, in my opinion, um, is really overlooked and really, really underappreciated uh, is the extent to which one can gain an understanding of the mitzvot, first of all, of the themes of the mitzvot, and second of all, of the foundation of their halachot, from reading the Torah Shebikhtav with greater care and with greater iyun, with a little more depth, than we typically approach it. I think that our nature, and I'm only speaking for myself and my very limited experience, but I, my, my impression is that uh, in general, it's uh, common for people to read the stories of the Torah Shebikhtav with great interest, and uh, maybe, to, and, and, and that's our nature. We're attracted to stories. We're attracted to drama, to narrative. That's why the, the Tanakh uses the medium of storytelling to educate us and to introduce us to its ideas and its values. It's through storytelling because that's so captivating from at any age, a story. We know if a speaker begins telling an anecdote, no matter how boring they are, all of a sudden, everyone's ears perk up and they start to lean in and they start to focus because a story really grabs us. And so the Torah works that way as well. But the sections of the mitzvot oftentimes are neglected. We read through them. We familiarize ourselves with them. Perhaps we remember the psukim. Hopefully we remember them. But uh, oftentimes we don't give them the same level of attention. And we kind of distinguish pretty neatly in our minds between what we find in Torah Shebikhtav and what we find in Torah Shebal Pen. In other words, when we learn the halachot of a certain mitzvah, we, uh, we separate that from, uh, uh, from its foundations in Torah Shebikhtav. And the Rambam is very, very emphatic about this. And I think really all of the Sephardic Chachamim make this point. It's one of the remarkable aspects and elements. I don't think I, I dwelled upon it much in the previous shiur, although I could have brought it up as well as one of the features of Parshanut, of the Sephardic Parshanut, that they, the emphasis of the, the Chachamim uh, of the Sephardic tradition was 
on the unity, on the integration of Torah Shebikhtav and Torah Shebaalpeh. And you find this first and foremost, of course, with the Rambam, who in the beginning of almost every work that he wrote, started out with this idea that all the mitzvot are uh, rooted in Torah Shebikhtav and are explained through the Torah Shebaalpeh. And that one must understand the Torah Shebikhtav through the Torah Shebaalpeh. Um, but you see this even in the Ramban. And as I mentioned, I use the Ramban and the Rambam as sort of a contrast with one another, not because, uh, not for any particular reason, not to highlight the superiority of one over the other or anything like that, but because, and obviously their, their, their theologies in certain respects differ, and what they would, let's say, consider a valid explanation for a mitzvah or a meaningful explanation for a mitzvah would differ. And it would probably be a great shiur to explore some of those examples as well, where you find that the Rambam and the Ramban, for instance, as, as examples of the Kabbalistic and non-Kabbalistic traditions, respectively, uh, differ in what they consider to be a meaningful interpretation of a mitzvah based on their framework. But leaving that aside, both of them do int- something very interesting, which is they mine the Torah Shebikhtav for the foundations of Torah Shebalpeh, or for the foundations of Halakha, and they see the halachic principles, if you will, as emerging from an understanding of Torah Shebikhtav that is deeper than the surface. So the Rambam in Mishneh Torah, of course, always starts with anchoring the Halakha in the Torah Shebalpeh, something that, let's say, for many other codes of law do not do at all. The Talmud itself doesn't do that. But the Ramban does that also. Nachmanides is always seeking to elucidate the Torah Shebikhtav in such a way that it is fertile ground for the emergence of an understanding of Torah Shebalpeh. And the Ralbag that I mentioned in the last Shi'ur, as someone who I believe in very many ways almost wrote the kind of a commentary on Torah Shebikhtav that the Rambam would have written. Not that he would agree with everything the Rambam said, and not that the Rambam would agree with everything he said, but the type of a perush that the Rambam would advocate is really best uh, exemplified, in my opinion, by, uh, by the Ralbag. Um, uh, he himself, in his introduction, makes this exceedingly explicit because he says, I want to write this perush that shows how the Torah Shebalpeh integrates with and emerges from the Torah Shebikhtav. And I'm going to write another perush, he said, although he never actually did it. He never actually succeeded in doing it. He didn't live to do it, I guess. He said, I'm going to write another perush where I show how all the principles of Torah Shebalpeh and of the Talmud are able to be uh, walked back or or demonstrated to have emerged from the Torah Shebikhtav. In other words, a full integration of the two systems. So in, when we turn to Torah Shebikhtav, we oftentimes, as I said, look at the reading of the Psukim. It's like, okay, okay, we got through it. Now let's open up the Mishneh Torah. Let's open up the Shukhan Let's get to the Gemara. Let's find out what the Halakha is. That's oftentimes what our reaction is. Instead of allowing the Torah Shebikhtav to do its work. And if we spend more time um, allowing the Torah Shebikhtav to work on us, seeing it, exploring it, um, I think we find that a lot of the foundations of the, even the Tamea Mitzvot, that people will say, well, the Tamea Mitzvot are speculative. The Tamea Mitzvot are... Um, what is the reason for a mitzvah is something that's a, a meta type of a question. We see that a lot of the answers to these sort of questions, a lot of these kinds of explanations emerge naturally from a, an attentive reading of Torah Shebikhtav. Now, I was, I was struggling with which example to use. Should I use an example that is that I, I could have used an example that was more focused, tighter, um, and more uh, readily connected to examples of halakha. But since we're going to do halakha in another session, I'm going to leave it for that session. And I'd instead like to focus on something that I believe and I hope, and maybe you'll tell, maybe I'll miss the mark here, but I really hope and believe that this sort of journey through Torah Shebikhtav will be transformative to some of you at least, and at the very least informative, and maybe a little bit deepening in your understanding of an area of, of observance, of observance that we all participate in and that we might not give that much uh, attention to uh, in terms of its depth. And to begin to see, to begin to give you the tools um, and the, the fertile ground from which you can see the halachic principles emerge. So the topic that I would like to talk about now with all that introduction is the topic of kashrut. Okay, now you, I know you've learned the halachot of kashrut with very good rabbis. I've seen that I, I didn't have a chance to, to watch all the series, but I know that you did do halachot of kashrut with wonderful rabbis. That's not what we're going to do today. What we're going to do is take a look at where Torah Shebikhtav, where the written Torah addresses kashrut, and what we can learn from an attentive and hopefully thoughtful 
exploration of the sources of Tawashi Bichtav with respect to Kashrut. And so I'd like to start. We're going to jump around a lot. So I'm going to share screen and I'm going to be jumping around a lot. I apologize in advance. There's, I want to first take a little bit of a, a look at the, um, the various places in which the laws of Kashrut are introduced to us throughout the Torah. Now, I'm sure that you all know from having read uh, Parashat Shavua, many of you for many years, that the laws of Kashrut are not all introduced in one place. And they're also not only introduced once. They're, uh, they're mentioned several times, and some are, uh, you know, some are isolated from others and so on. So let's take a look first. Let's take a survey of the places in which we find to, uh, the, uh, the Kashrut and Toashi Bichtav, and that's going to be an opening for us. So I'm going to just share my screen. I hope this works. Um, hope it works uh, reliably. I'm going to give it a shot. Um, okay. So this is... Probably the most famous list of the kosher and non-kosher animals. It's found in Parashat Shemini. This is a random, I don't know what translation this is, a JPS. Okay, that wasn't my choice. I just opened up Safari. Yeah? So um, it wasn't this. And I, I, put, I guess some of you might find all Hebrew to be overwhelming. And some of you might find a distracting English translation to be distracting. I apologize. But he, this is the introduction of, uh, of Kashrut. When we think of Kashrut, we think of this, I think. Um, because this is the first comprehensive list of the prohibited uh, creatures, okay? So Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron saying to them, These are the animals or the living things that you should eat from all of the animals on the land. And then we have a list of the cloven hoof and the, uh, and the chewing of the cud, this, the, what we know to be the in indicators that a particular animal is kosher. We're familiar with that. And then, of course, the Torah goes on after that to describe uh, aquatic creatures. And the Torah goes on to describe, of course, birds down here, flying creatures. And, uh, and then at the end speaks about, interestingly, uh, the laws of Tumavitara. Okay, the laws of purity and impurity with respect to the carcasses of these animals. The following will make you impure. That's actually, that translation is an interpretation because some people say it's going on the, actually what was written before and some people say it was going on the what's coming ahead. It doesn't matter. Now, so all of the animals that don't meet the criteria for kosher animals, they are impure. Anybody who touches them will become tamay. Now, by the way, the laws of Tum'an never apply to a living animal. So we're talking about the carcass of one of these animals that's going to make you tamay, not when it's alive. Now, if you slip down a little bit further, you see the different kinds of lizards and crawling things that are likewise are tamay. And you find the laws of Tum'ah. What happens if one of these dead animals or one of these shratzim, one of these creepy crawlies, falls into uh, 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 an earthenware vessel, it has contact with various kinds of materials, they're also going to become tamay, and so on and so forth. Okay? And if we scroll all the way down, okay, we see this. So that's a, that's a general thing about the Shratim. I am Hashem, your God, and you should be sanctified and be holy because I am holy. Uh, and you should not defile your souls with all of the crawling things that move on the earth and uh, so on. So on. This is the law or the instruction related to all of the various creatures. To distinguish between what is pure and what is impure, the edible living thing and the, ed- and the living thing that may not be eaten. Okay, I'm obviously jumping and summarizing because otherwise we'll be here all day. But why am I giving you this? To show you something very interesting. First of all, what do we notice is fused in the presentation of the Torah that to us would normally not have anything to do with each other. The laws of Tum'ah, the laws of impurity and purity, which in our minds relate mainly to the framework of the Beta Mikdash or the Mishkan, places that are sacred and into which one who is impure is not allowed to enter, right? 
That's how we nor- that's when we normally think of tumah v'tara. We think of these ritual impurity. When we see a non-kosher piece of meat, we're not thinking in terms of purity and impurity. We're thinking in terms of kashrut, which to us is a different thing. What are you allowed to eat or not allowed to eat is not the same thing as tamay v'tara. And yet the Torah is saying that it is. Okay, the Torah is identifying the two. In fact, what is the context of this? What is the next parasha? Tazriya, which goes on to talk about various other kinds of tumah v'tara, various other kinds of purities and impurities um, that we encounter from our bodies. Um, and then we have the parashat mitzvah, where there's even more of that. And at the very end of parashat mitzvah, the command to the kohanim to be the ones who are the arbiters, who assess, who define, who instruct, and, and guide us in terms of the purity and the impurity. And what was right before the laws of kashrut? Of course, the dedication of the mishkan and the deaths of Nadav and Aviu. So this is squarely in the context of laws related to the Beta Mikdash, which is something very, very remarkable because I don't think anybody, when they go to get their kosher meat from the store, is thinking anything about the Beta Mikdash. When they're considering whether an item is uh, allowed to be eaten or not allowed to be eaten, is not really thinking about the Beta Mikdash on a, uh, on a regular basis. The Rambam is a very interesting halacha that he learns from here, which is mitzvah da seleida simanim. This is from a little bit, um, this is from uh, uh, a little bit later on, towards the end of the description. This pasuk is what we just read. The Rambam says that it's a mitzvah to know the different kinds of animals, which ones are kasher and which ones are not. Now, that's a very interesting thing because why should I need to know that, right? You should just, as long as I know that this, somebody reliable put a stamp on this meat that it's kasher. What what do I care what the simanim are that they use to determine it? If I go to a doctor, the doctor tells me, oh, you have this illness, you have this. I don't say, well, I want to know exactly what does that blood test measure that tells you that I have this or I have that? What is the strep throat test? What does it measure? I don't ask those kinds of questions. I just want to know, do I have it or not? So kashrut also. Why do we need to know the simanim and the differentia between the various animals? Let's leave that aside and take a jump to some other examples where we find uh, kashrut mentioned in the Torah. So the, the, another example, actually the first place that we encounter anything similar to kashrut is in Shemot, in Parashat Mishpatim. The very first is in Parashat Mishpatim. And uh, it, it, when it discusses, we'll get to it, Parashat Mishpatim, when it discusses Trefa. So let's find it. I don't want to ro- roll, scroll down too fast because we'll pass it. Um, hold on. Ah, here we go. Now, look at this. Now, I want to tell you if I'm just imagining it or there's a pattern here. It says here, Don't put off the giving. is talking about the Tzuma and other kinds of gifts that are given to the Kohanim. Give me the first male among your children, meaning that you have to do Pidyon Aben. So shall you do with your oxen and with you, or with your cattle, it says here, and your flocks. So the implication, of course, is as the English has it, which is talking about the firstborn, meaning that only on the eighth day of birth, after birth, can you take an animal and make it a sacrifice if you have a firstborn animal, correct? Now, this seems to be squarely in the realm of Beta Mikdash. We're talking about Korbanot. We're talking about giving things to the Kohanim. But then look what we have. You shall be a holy people to me. You should be a holy people to me. Don't eat meat that was torn in the field. That's Torefa, the mitzvah of not eating Torefa. You shall throw it to the dogs. Okay? Now, Torefa, we know, doesn't necessarily mean um, an animal that was torn in the field. That's just an example. But the point is that right in the same parasha that's talking about matters related to, to the, uh, right in the same series of psuki that's talking about giving a korban, we encounter halachav kashrut, that you shouldn't eat a trefa. 
Now let's look at the next example. The next example is when these mitzvot really are, um, oh, actually even before that, at, when, when at the closing we have, and this is a, even, an even more obvious example of Bet HaMikdash linking to Kashrut. Shalosh ba'amim ba'shana, okay, reshit bikurei ad matachat avi bet Hashem Eloecha, the first of the fruits of your, of your land you shall bring to the house of Hashem your God, lo tevashel gedi b'chalevimo. Don't cook a kid in its mother's milk, which of course we know is a reference to the prohibition of eating meat and milk or cooking meat and milk. Okay, so what is all this here? Shalosh pamim b'shana yarekol zechorchat el pnei ha'adon Hashem, lo tizbach al-chamed zam zivchi, all of these mitzvot are related to korbanot. They're related to aliyah l'regel. They're related to going up to Yerushalayim, going to the Beit HaMikdash for the festivals and bringing sacrifices. And then all of a sudden, tacked on at the end, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. Okay? So the again, there it doesn't seem to be an accident that the laws of kashrut are appearing always in a context associated with the Beit HaMikdash. Let's take another example. Um, maybe the, there, you, as I'm sure you all know, Parashat Kitisa essentially review, revises, as you say in, in British English, or we say reviews in our American English, you know, the, um, the, the laws that are found in Parashat Mishpatim, because the covenant is renewed when the second Luchot are issued to Moshe Rabbeinu after the forgiveness of the golden calf. So we don't have to read that again, but I, could, I don't want to beat a dead horse, as they say. But we will go here to the next place that we find Kashrut, which is uh, in the book of Dvarim. There are two things in the book of Dvarim that are worth looking at. One is in actually Parashat Re'eh. Let's go back to the actual beginning because it's easier. Um, because I don't want to, I want to show you two things. One is in Parashat Re'eh, um, where, which is the discussion of Shechita. Okay. Actually, that was kind of in the right place. Uh, it's, it's more towards the beginning. Now, it's talking about bringing korbanot. What was the big issue that was going to, that the Jewish people were going to face when they came into Eretz Israel? They were going to face the problem that up until now, all of the meat that they consumed was a korban because the Mishkan was right there. So if they wanted to sacrifice, if they wanted to have a barbecue, if they wanted to have hamburgers, they wanted to have some kind of meat, they would make it a korban. Now they're going to be spread throughout all of Eretz Israel. Every time you want to have a shawarma, you're not going to go to the Beit HaMikdash to make a korban. It's not practical. So there's two possibilities. One possibility is that meat is going to be prohibited all the time and in every place, except when you come to the Beit HaMikdash, like it was in the good old days in the Midbar. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that somehow there's going to be a relaxation of the laws that restrict consumption of meat to the Beit HaMikdash. Okay? And that's what we end up finding. Right? That is... Uh, but the, this is talking again about the Beit HaMikdash. When it talks about having one singular place for worship when you come to Eretz Israel, which eventually became Yerushalayim and Harabayit, you should bring all of these offerings to the Beit HaMikdash, etc., etc. You will eat there before Hashem, your God. So this is talking about the Beit HaMikdash. Okay? And then it says like this, that... Uh, uh, that you shouldn't bring korbanot in any old place. So don't bring korbanot anywhere besides the Beit HaMikdash. But if you really want to have meat, you can eat meat somewhere else. You can have the impure and the pure eating your meat. Meaning before... All you were allowed to eat were sacrifices. So only a pure person could eat from that. Only a ritually pure person could eat from that. But now that you're coming to Eretz Israel and you're allowed to have a normal meat, so anybody could eat from it. Now, what's the reason for mentioning that? So you might say, well, why did I normally not eat the blood? Because it was used as part of the sacrifice before. But now that I'm allowed to make a barbecue in my backyard and slaughter an animal in my backyard for my own personal use, maybe I can eat the blood. That's why I was telling you, no, you still can't eat the blood. And let me just reemphasize that Torah says, you can't eat any korbanot in that place. Only before Hashem you can do that, right? But, but anywhere that you are, you can eat meat as you wish. Okay? Because it's too far for you to go to Yerushalayim to eat it. Okay? 
And now, this is one of the most famous psukim. You should slaughter from your cattle or from your sheep that Hashem has given you as He commanded you. What is the very famous interpretation of as He commanded you? Ah, it's a proof for Torah Shebaal Peh. Right? Because it, because you don't find anywhere in the Torah that it tells you how to slaughter animals. Must be that there was Torah Shebaal Peh. That is a very traditional interpretation. Interestingly, the Ramban does not accept that interpretation. He says, do you know what Kasher Tziviticha means? And I would say that this is much closer to the Pshat of what it means. What does Kasher Tziviticha mean? As you have been commanded concerning Korbanot. Because where do we, we never find any Zvicha. We never find any slaughtering in the Torah except Korbanot that is commanded. So when he says Kasher Tziviticha, it means do it exactly the way you do it when you bring a korban. Just don't actually bring a korban. In other words, when you're slaughtering an animal, what you're basically doing, if you think about it, and now things start to become even more connected to korbanot, you're doing the exact ritual that a kohen did in the Bet HaMikdash. Actually, this shechita didn't have to be done by a kohen, but that's a detail, right? The exact ritual that, that you would be done in the Bet HaMikdash, you are slaughtering the animal according to the halachot of the korban. You are letting the blood come out just like the blood of a korban would be collected, actually, for the sake of the sacrifice. You are removing the fats. Those fats would normally be placed on the altar of the Beit HaMikdash. You're not allowed to eat them, right? So you're doing everything as if it's a korban. The only thing missing is the actual offering because you're not offering any part of that animal to God in the sense of a korban. So you're doing everything you could except the actual offering of the uh, fats and whatever limbs on the altar. That's really what is happening every time a shochet does shechita on an animal. Okay? And that's the, that's, the, that's the chidush, really. If you read the Torah closely, that's what the Torah is telling. Right? You can eat it just like anything else. But don't eat the blood and so on. Okay? And it emphasizes that many times. Uh, only your holy items do you have to bring up to the Beit HaMikdash then you put the blood and the fats on the Mizbeach but normally you just discard them because you're not near the Mizbeach and therefore you can't put them on the Mizbeach so the, the, there's actually a very interesting law called you're not allowed to slaughter mundane offerings in the Beit HaMikdash meaning you're getting an exception. What is the exception? You're allowed to slaughter this animal in the way of a korban, as if it were a korban, but without the actual offering. But if you are actually in the Bet HaMikdash, what's your excuse for not doing an actual offering? You're allowed to eat all the meat anyway in a korban shlamin. So then you have to do it as a korban. Every other time, you do as much of a korban you can do without violating the prohibition of sacrificing to God outside of the Beit HaMikdash. Okay? Now, and this is really what the Torah is telling us if we read it closely. This is exactly what it's telling us. I'm really barely adding anything, I hope you realize, to the text. Right? I'm really just reading it. Now, let's fast forward to the one last point I wanted to show you. That the last time the Torah mentions Kashrut is towards the end of Parashat um, Re'eh, which I'm going really quick. I hope I'm not making you dizzy. Um, uh, okay. Where is it? Did I pass it already? I passed it now. Yeah. I'm going too fast. It was right before this. Here we go. Yeah, I don't know how I fast, I fast forward through that so fast. All right. Yeah, here, here's the list of all the animals, again, that are not kosher. Okay, but again, what is the context of all this? The context of Parashat Re'eh is about going to the Bet HaMikdash, making sure the service of God is concentrated and focused in the Bet HaMikdash and not anywhere else. That's what it is up till now. That's what it's going to be in the subsequent segments of the, of the Torah here. Right after this, it's going to talk about the Aliyah Regel, basically. Okay, going up to the Bet HaMikdash on certain appointed times. And we have again, this is the one mitzvah we hadn't seen yet. Nevelah is an animal that dies without slaughter. 
לגר אשר בשעריך תתננה ואכלה, you should give it to a Gentile, או מחול לנוכי or sell it to it. כי עם קדוש אתה לשם אלוהיך, לא תבשל גדי בחלב אמו. Do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. And again, right after that we have a discussion of ויאכלת לפני השם אלוהיך במקום אשר יבחר לשכן שמו שם, going up to ירושלים, going up to the בית המקדש and so on. So all of this shows us, I think, I believe, is a, uh, there's a pattern here that the Beta Mikdash sacrifices the Beta Mikdash to Mavitara, purity and impurity, which is generally, these are generally a nomenclature, generally a uh, categories restricted to the Beta Mikdash and to matters of the Beta Mikdash, right? We see that they are continually mentioned in connection with the, uh, uh, with Kashrut. All the laws of Kashrut are somehow always appearing in a context related to things of the Beit HaMikdash, instead of a context of, let's say, the Chagim, or something that is more personal, but always in the context of the Beit HaMikdash. Now, um, the, the question is, of course, why is that? And, and I think the Shechita gives us a little bit of an opening, but let's take a step back to one of our first, first questions, is, which is why is it important for a person to know the animals that are kosher and not kosher, to be able to identify them, to be able to name them? Okay, does the idea of naming animals make us think of anything else that we find in the Torah? How about chapter two of the Torah? Right, the very first human being, Adam, what does he do? What is the very first thing that Hashem uh, assigns, so to speak, to Adam Arishon? Vayitzer Hashem Elohim min Adama kol chayat asadeh. That Adam's first job was to label, to categorize the animals. In other words, the animals, and this is where I think the Torah is really showing us. From the very beginning, the animal kingdom is the greatest educational tool for human beings to come to a recognition of God, because there are few uh, phenomena in nature, there are few phenomena in our environment that so clearly demonstrate the existence of some kind of purpose, of some kind of teleological, um, have a teleological implication, meaning have an implication of purpose, of objective, of end, that you can see that there's a design to the animal. How the design got there, I'm not getting into evolution and all that. Uh, we're not gonna get we're not gonna step on the uh on that minefield today. We'll talk about that another time. The main point is that in the animals, you certainly see purpose and design. How the design, how God uh brought that design to its current uh state is a different story, but that there is a design is very clear. So therefore. For a person to look and to study the animal kingdom, it's an incredible opportunity to see the handiwork of God in a way, meaning when we look at the planetary motion or we look at any other phenomena in nature, we can see order, we can see beauty, but there's nothing as palpable and as clear to us, as obvious to us in terms of design and purpose as the animal kingdom. Because there's a biological entity that has a body anatomy that functions to keep it alive, that functions to enable it to reproduce, that, it, that goes and, and, and gets its sustenance from the environment and then processes it. We see all of this. That's why biology is much more of a challenge uh, for atheists, let's say, than uh, physics. You know? But that's why the biologists are the ones who are the most outspoken about their rejection of God, because it's the, it's the field where ostensibly one would be most likely to believe that there is a God. Because you see that there is a there's a purpose that these creatures are designed that are they, that, that even down to the molecular level, things seem to be designed in a way to sustain life, to promote life, to perpetuate species. You know, so we're, I'm not suggesting that Adam Arishon looked at the molecular level. Maybe he didn't have the ability to see that, but certainly that he could observe the nature of animals and see something incredible about them. And then he looked at himself and he said, wait a second, I see that every animal ha- is I'm also an animal. I'm also part of the animal kingdom. How come I don't have a partner with whom to reproduce? In other words, he made that breakthrough from his study of nature. We can make breakthroughs into our understanding of ourselves from looking at nature, from looking at the animal kingdom. And that's one of the remarkable things. Now, this is Adam Rishon, And we know that Adam Rishon did not eat animals, according to our, our tradition, according to what we understand from Torah Shebikhtav, he only ate vegetables. Because you wouldn't eat 
your lessons. You wouldn't eat your, uh, you wouldn't eat the material. Well, I'm sure there are some children who probably would like to eat the, the materials that are being used in the lesson so they could avoid having to study or avoid having to listen in class. But Adam Arishon is not going to eat the very thing that's educating him. He's going to study it. He's going to observe it. He's going to learn about it. He doesn't want to eat it. Okay, what, what do we find? Where's the next place that we find somebody categorizing animals, incidentally? I'm sure you know this because uh, now that I brought you all the way back to Boreshit, you're certainly going to be thinking of the next famous Adam number two. Adam number two being Noah. Now, Adam number two is similarly charged with a very fascinating task, which is to gather animals. And he's, he is tasked with gathering animals that are either Mikola Beima Toa or from the Beima that's Enena Toa from the behemah that is uh, the kosher one. Now, obviously, to, there are two ways to interpret that. One is the more midrashic way that Noah knew what a kosher animal or non-kosher animal would be in the future from his nevoah. I'm not ruling that interpretation out, but you don't have to say that interpretation. Another possibility is that the Torah is just using a shorthand and means to say that Hashem told Noah, such and such categories of animals you should collect, such and such you should collect two, such and such you should collect 14. And those happen to be the same animals that we call kosher and non-kosher. So for the sake of shorthand, the Torah just calls them kosher and non-kosher for the readership so that we don't have to read all the list of the animals that he brought 14 and the animals that he brought two, right? So however you want to take it. But the point is that clearly Noah had to go through a process of categorizing animals. Look at how similar the language is. This language is both reminiscent of Breshit and also reminiscent of the list of kosher and non-kosher animals that you find in Vaikra that we read before. Okay, so he has to do all of this and take care of them. And then, of course, we know at the end he's allowed to eat animals. After he does all of that, he sacrifices to God from the behemotah teorot, and he is then allowed to eat animals, okay? Now, what do you see from here? You see that, that Noah, again, becomes someone who is attentive to God's design in nature, okay? He is attentive to God's design in nature. Adam was attentive to God's design in nature and was recognizing God through that. It sort of got lost somewhere along the way. Hashem is reinstituting that and saying to Noah, I want you to engage with the animal kingdom. I want you to see it. I want you to appreciate it. I want you to know it. Okay. The difference is that, uh, that Noah sacrifices from the animals and eats them. In other words, he utilizes the animals in some way. What's the difference between sacrificing and eating? When you sacrifice an animal, you say it belongs to God. Okay. That's the opposite of, let's say, a totemizing of the animal, because what's the extreme that can emerge from being attentive to and and appreciating the beauty of the creation? It can be deifying the creation. Like in America, they call them tree huggers, you know, people who or, you know, people who are so much uh, appreciative of nature that nature becomes their God. We don't believe in that. We believe that, that only God is God. On the other hand, you can go to the other extreme where you only see nature as something to consume, something to physically consume. I'm not talking about intellectual consumption, right? Phys- like the Rambam says, consumption can also mean the mind, or not in the mind of Uchim. But we're talking about physical consumption. In other words, you can reduce it, like in the old cartoons when I was growing up, when the wolf would see a chicken, and all of a sudden it would imagine like a roast chicken. You know, it would see a live chicken walking around, and it would imagine the edible chicken right away, you know, meaning that all you see is an opportunity to gratify your instincts. You can look at the animal kingdom in two extreme ways. One is just as a something for you to plunder and to exhaust in the, in the satisfaction of your appetites, or you can look at it as something that, uh, that is deified, that you can't touch because it's, it is, it's so great, it's godlike. What does the Torah tell us to do? On one hand, we don't want you to make the mistake of deifying creation. So therefore, we have you sacrifice to God from the, from, from, the, from the animals. So you recognize that even the highest life form, and obviously we don't, we don't sacrifice the highest life form on earth, which would be a human, but we sacrifice other living creatures to say that they belong to God. But on the other hand, we're allowed at the same time to consume those animals because the consumption of animals reminds us that we ourselves are not animals. 
So we don't identify with animals. As the old saying goes, some of the environmentalists and animals rights activists say animals are people too. We don't believe animals are people too. We don't believe animals are gods. We don't believe animals are people. We believe animals are creatures of God that have a right to exist, so to speak, that have a reason that they exist, that also manifest God's design and God's wisdom and God's chesed and all of those things. So we don't have a right to destroy them for no purpose, but we do have a right to eat them. As lo- We have a right to eat them, but we have to respect them, but not respect them so much that they replace God. So engaging, and, and this brings us back to what the Rambam says about knowing the criteria to differentiate animal from animal. What does that require you to do? It requires you to learn something about the animals. It requires you to put yourself back in the position of Adam Rishon, to put yourself back in the position of Noah, and to learn about the animals, to appreciate what they are, to classify them, to engage, so to speak, in a scientific way with the animal kingdom and to see the animal kingdom as something other than reduced to your appetitive needs, okay? Which also is a reason why uh, kashrut is sometimes associated with the removal from idolatry because idolatry is the belief that everything revolves around my needs. Everything revolves around human need. So that belief would also lead to looking at animals from that perspective. What we have is the idea of engaging with the mind, engaging the animal kingdom with the mind, classifying it, categorizing it, studying it, understanding it the way that Adam and Noah had to do. Okay, so now let's take a look at what other mitzvot we have. So what starts to become clear, right? What starts to become clear is that what allows us to partake of the animal kingdom and this is where the shechita piece comes in. What allows us to partake of the animal kingdom is that we do it for the purpose of serving God. When we eat meat, it's for the purpose of serving God. That's how it doesn't become disconnected from the awareness of God. Because how could you otherwise justify if you maintain that these animals are really creatures of God that need to be appreciated and studied and 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 valued, how can you eat them? I can eat them because I'm eating them to give my body energy so I can study the handiwork of God to an even higher level. That's called Avodat Hashem. Like the Rambam says, everything I do is for the purpose of serving God, right? Including my eating and drinking. What's the ultimate example of eating and drinking that's for the sake of serving God? Eating the meat of a korban because the korban literally went to honor God and you're partaking of it. So a korban you can never forget in your consumption of a koban that you are serving God through that eating, that the purpose of the eating is to bring, in, bring you closer to God, is to give you the energy that allows you to draw nearer to God. You're not going to forget that when you're eating a koban. What happens when, you have, when you're not near the Beit HaMikdash? What happens when you're far from the Beit HaMikdash? You do everything you can in preparing that animal to bring it as close to a koban as you can. You do the shechita. You remove the blood. You remove the fats. You make it a, what I call a truncated koban. A a koban that almost was, but wasn't. Because basically what you're doing is keeping that idea that my eating of the animals is l'shem avodat Hashem. And that opens up to me why the laws of kashrut are always framed as tamei v'tahor. Pure and impure. Why tamei v'tahor? Tamei v'tahor has to do with the Bet HaMikdash. But tamei really is something else. It means fit for the service of God or unfit for the service of God. That's what tamei means. That's why it's different than kadosh. Kadosh is something else, consecrated. Tamei is fit for the service of God or unfit for the service of God. So when I'm asking you, is this animal kasher or not kasher? I'm asking you, is it tamei or taor? Is it something fit that has been determined to be fit for the service of God? or something that has been determined to be unfit for the service of God. And just like within the Beit HaMikdash, there are certain species, even among the kosher animals, that are allowed to be brought for korbanot, or not allowed to be brought for korbanot. Okay? So, and moreover, you have the idea of what, we have trefa. What is trefa? A defect in the animal. You have that also in korbanot, don't you? Because you're not allowed to bring a korban that has a mum, that has a defect. 
Now, the definition of a defect for a korban is a lot more subtle and a lot more strict than a defect for my eating when it's not a korban. But the idea that I'm not allowed to eat a defective animal is because I have to give kavod to my own eating because my eating is also avodat Hashem. My eating is also for the purpose of avodat Hashem. And therefore, the food has to be a proper type of food. What does it say about treifah? Throw it to a dog. Meaning that's not an animal's, that is not a food that's appropriate for someone who's an Eved Hashem to be eating. It's an animal that should be eaten by a dog, not by you. And what does it say about an animal that is not slaughtered properly? Give it to a non-Jew. Why? Because a non-Jew is also a human being, meaning there's a nevela is not an undignified food. It's just a food that wasn't slaughtered properly. And because it wasn't slaughtered properly, it wasn't rendered fit for avodat Hashem. And a Jewish person in all of their eating is engaged in avodat Hashem. That's the same reason why we do tevilat kelim. Because we're, we're showing that our, if we purchase a, a, a vessels from a Gentile, we're designating them for avodat Hashem. There's no impurity in the vessel that it came from a non-Jew that made it or we bought it from that. The idea is that we're preparing it for avodat Hashem because our eating and drinking is avodat Hashem. So last but not least, basar b'chalav. Well, how does basar b'chalav fit into this? What is the problem with basar b'chalav? Why, now, now you understand why all the laws of Kashrut are always in, in, in talking about the Beta Mikdash. Because what we're trying to do when we eat and drink Kasher is we are trying, like the Kohanim and the Beta Mikdash, where, where they're eating and they're drinking of, of the, in, in the realm of Korbanot, is all uh, directing them towards knowledge of God. It's all instrumental to Avodat Hashem. That's what we're trying to do in our own lives in a less extreme way, let's say. In a, you know, in a, in a in a, in a more uh, a general way, not in as, uh, as heightened a way. What about Basar B'chalav? So with all of that we've said, you should be able to see. Basar B'chalav, what, what's the problem with meat and milk? Milk, now we said before, that the greatest danger, there are two dangers. One danger is to believe that the animal only exists to satisfy my appetite. The other danger is to believe that the animal is, is a god, you know? So what's the, uh, or, or is equal to a human, or is a god? What does Basar B'chalav represent? You take the substance, the dead animal, the animal that has been made for human consumption, which you're allowed to do. You're allowed to take a particular animal and make it for human consumption. You're not allowed to eradicate a species that God created. You're allowed to take a particular animal for human consumption. But to take the milk that was intended to keep that animal alive in nature as a creature of God and make it into a condiment for your meat is basically saying the only purpose in this animal's existence was to serve my appetite. Because even the milk that was supposed to keep it alive I'm going to make into an ingredient when I eat it. And if you think about it, that's really psychologically why it bothers you, right? Because you're taking the very, you're taking the milk that would have fed the animal and you're making it into something to boil the animal in to eat it. You're totally reducing the existence of the animal to your own appetite. And that's the problem with that. Uh, that's what Basab Khalaf comes to stop because once you've slaughtered the animal properly, which means you've, done, you've made it a korban, so to speak, right? You've made it into, you've said this meat is a vehicle of avodat Hashem outside the Beit HaMikdash. Not an actual korban, but a vehicle of avodat Hashem. I used my mind to categorize the animals, to identify the different categories. I selected a particular animal. I slaughtered it for the sake of avodat Hashem which is my heter, that's my permission to be able to partake of an animal that I slaughtered it with, in having in mind that I'm doing it for avodat Hashem to get closer to God and not, ju- not to reduce it to a, a way to satisfy my appetite. But now that piece of meat is in my refrigerator. When I go to prepare it, how do I keep that idea in mind? Especially those of us who don't actually slaughter animals. We only get the meat. We're at the, we're at the stage of the supply chain, which is the supermarket, most of us, Right. So how do I keep in mind the idea that this animal didn't only exist to serve my appetite? It actually was just one specimen 
of God's creation that had a right to exist, that had a reason for its existence, and I'm allowed to partake of it subject to certain limits. How do I remember that? Because at least I don't take milk and cook it with milk. I say that that this animal, I recognize that this animal had a life, had an existence. Animals have an existence that God endowed them with. And I'm taking this one example, this one particular animal to eat it, but I'm not going to forget that there's a difference. There's a big difference between a living animal that's fulfilling its divine purpose, whatever that purpose is. As the Rambam says, we can't say what the purpose is of any species. They exist because they exist, right? Because God willed it. I'm not going to reduce that animal to a tool of my appetite just because I'm eating a hamburger right now. To eat a cheeseburger is to say the only, the whole essence of this animal was to satisfy my desires. And that we don't want to say. So in brief, just to summarize, all of the laws of Kashrut are really a mirror in one way or another of the laws of the Beit HaMikdash because they are an attempt to take our engagement with the animal kingdom and to calibrate it with our knowledge of God. That since animals are creatures of God like us, they are instructive to us, they are valued by God in the eyes of God, and they are a way for us to come to recognize God's handiwork because of all that. And yet we also want to uh, uh, partake of them as food, as sustenance, and we don't want to think that we are the same as animals, as animals without intellect are the same as humans, or humans are the same as uh, as uh, brute animals. So therefore, we're allowed to partake of them. But we're allowed to partake of them in the framework that we're doing it, l'shem avodat Hashem. L'shem avodat, or as the Rambam says, we want to do an achila sheyesh ba avodat hayotzer. We want to, we want, we eat them in a way that keeps God at the forefront of our mind by bringing it as close to a korban as possible without actually being a korban, and by avoiding preparing the meat in a way that suggests that the animal's whole existence can be reduced to the satisfaction or gratification of our appetites. And and therefore, to say that really what kashrut is, is transforming our eating, especially our eating of animals, into avodat Hashem, to make sure that our eating of animals remains on the level of an evid Hashem, which is that we recognize the value of the animal kingdom as the royal road to Yediyat Hashem in certain ways. And as we appreciate God's handiwork in nature, even as we partake of it for the satisfaction of our bodily needs, we balance those two with the laws of kashrut. But it transforms the way you think about kashrut, that what you're really doing when you take a piece of kosher meat is saying, this is meat that is it's meat that is fit for avodat Hashem. It's tahor meat. Okay, it's meat that's slaughtered according to the way a korban is slaughtered, that is freed of its blood and of its fats, the way a korban is freed of its blood and fats, and that's prepared in a way that is cognizant of its of my ultimate purpose in uh, in eating it, which is coming closer to boreolam. And I think this you can see from the many examples of how kashrut is presented us in, to, to us in the Torah, and many, many halachot of kashrut, and the way that it's set up halachically, the foundations are in understanding this idea. And the, the deeper that you delve, the more you will see parallels between the laws of kashrut. For example, just another random example, the law of absorption into kelim, of absorption into vessels, is actually also learned from the korbanot. That a korban chatat, a sin offering, you're only allowed to eat for one day. So if it's cooked in a pot, now that pot has flavor that's only kosher for that one day. Once the day is over, it becomes non-kosher. You have to clean, you have to kosher, you have to boil it out, right? If something's earthenware, you have to break it. The laws of kashrut are directly borrowed from the laws of, uh, of the Beit HaMikdash because we are mamlechet kohanim v'goy kadosh. We are supposed to be a, a kingdom of priests and holy nation where all of our eating and drinking, and especially when it comes to the animal kingdom, where it, where it involves destroying, to a certain extent, uh, living creatures, all of it has to be calibrated with our purpose of Avodat Hashem and coming closer to Yediyat Hashem. I hope that sheds some light. I, I find it to be a nice example of how you can see really a whole area of observance, um, uh, you know, from the Torah Shebikhtav uh, become uh, clarified. Are there any questions? I know I went on longer than uh, I had planned. Let me unshare. Okay.
Ohad has, has a question. Yes. Thank you, Rav. That was a beautiful presentation. Um, uh, so we see how, how really the, um, the Turash Bechtav informs our observance of the mitzvot. I mean, it works together also with the halakha to, to inform our observance. Um, but do we see how the context in the Turash Bechtav defines the halakha? Like if there is a, um, a gray area in halakha, the context would tip it to a different, to a, a different uh, uh, mode of behavior. Meaning, like, what, what kind of, what kind of context? Let's say we're not sure if it's like this or like this, and then based off of the context that we draw from the Torah Shabbatav, we will follow, um, you know, one. There are opinion definitely examples where that that happens. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely examples of what that happens. That's already getting into more the framework of Torah uh, Balpe, the methodology of the Chachamim in clarifying halacha using the text um, and being Jewish particular halachic formulations from the text. What I did today, hopefully, was just show you that now you have a groundwork and a framework. Now you learn the laws of kashrut and you can tie them back and see how much they relate to and they overlap with. Um, I gave one example of, for example, the shechita. Um, shechita is the most obvious one. But all, you know, the fats, the blood, all of these things are directly out of the laws of korbanot. You look at then the flip side. If you walk into the Beit HaMikdash, you're not allowed to now do shechita tchulin. You're not allowed to slaughter a regular or normal animal, right? What does that show you? That shows you that, hey, up till now, I was only allowed to do a regular shechita because it wasn't able to be a full korban. Because really my obligation is to make my consumption of animals only l'shem avodat Hashem at the highest level. And now that I'm in the Beit HaMikdash, I have to go to the highest level. So that's an example of where you see the Torah Shebikhtav never explicitly says that. That's a Torah Shebalpero, halachal Moshe Misinai, according to some. You know, but you see how from from an, uh, an understanding of where the laws of shechita come from, that they come from korbanot, and that the consumption of meat is tied to korbanot, um, you can understand where that halacha is based. Thank you. Or I'll give you another really random example. Let's say, for example, uh, there's no shechita of birds mentioned anywhere in the Torah ever. Right? There's no, it's never mentioned. There's only melika. There's only what's done in the uh, there's only what's done in the uh, in the Beit Hamikdash, which is breaking the back of the neck of the bird. So because of that, you have a machloket in the Gemara: Is shechita of a bird deoraita or derabanan? Okay, right away now you understand why. Because hey, wait a second, shechita of a bird doesn't exist in korbanot, right? You see, mm-hmm. so that that that's an example. You could see where that machloket would emerge from. And therefore, they have to make an analogy to uh, meat and say that just like meat is going to have shechita, birds also have shechita. But it, it was an issue of debate because of this precise reason, because you never have in the Torah any example of shechita of birds in the context of korbanot. I think someone else raising their hand, but I think... Would like to unmute? Go ahead. Hi, Rabbi. This is uh, Adam. As you, how are you? Oh, hi, Adam. How are you? Hi. Long time no see. Would, would you? Yeah. <laughs> would you say perhaps uh, we have a mitzvah of kisui hadam, which is only for the chulin, not for for korbanot? Would it also have a parallel in that we're saying maybe this blood is is not a korban, and therefore we're specifically covering it so that we're not going to confuse it and, and use it as if it's a korban? What you're saying is, is right, but I have to take it one level further. You're, you're exactly right, meaning you're warm. You're, on, you're exactly on the right track, but it's a step further than that. What do you do kisui hadaman on species that are never used as korbanot? That's what you do kisui hadam. You do it on chaya v'of. Right? So it's primarily for the types of animals that are not used for korbanot. Whereas you could not have a mitzvah of kisui adam on the korban on the animals that they're korbanot, because then you have a conflict when you have an actual korban between the mitzvah of kisui adam and the mitzvah of zrikat adam that you have to do in the Beit Hamikdash. So by covering the blood, it's it, that component of the role of the blood in korbanot is absent in that case. So you have a mitzvah of kisui adam of covering the blood. But you're exactly right that that's the connection. Thank you. Uh, there's another good example of Torah Shebikhtav. Basically, once you understand this, it opens up so many other uh, elements of the various mitzvot related to food uh, that could be understood better. Uh, can I ask a question? Um, 
the parallel is is so convincing and and I w- I'm wondering you may have referred to it but do any of the, like the classical commentators focus on this sort of the, the similarity between the shechita and and kashrut to such an extent or, or was this more yom chidush um, or is it just it's it's obvious once you study it that it doesn't even need to be elaborated upon. I like to flatter myself and say that it was so obvious that it didn't need to be elaborated upon. How about that? I don't know. Um, I see Rimazim. My this was a this was a shiur that actually I first gave twenty five years ago. Uh, over the years, I've added to it from seeing these additional connections over the years and building it into what it is today. Um, I have like cassette tapes of my original shiurim somewhere of Kashrut va'avodah uh, from, from decades ago um, when I first started to see these parallels. I think the Ramban definitely alludes to it in his, uh, you know, in, in connecting Shechita to the Korbanot. I, I found, I think that what I've found, and this is something we can maybe talk about in another shiur because it's almost a topic in its own right. Once you start to, to, to perceive a certain idea or a set of themes, and you pursue that set of themes, you'll find that evidence turns up to, to corroborate it along the way. And you're almost led naturally. As I, was, as I was working through this, and we're going back, like I said, 25 years, uh, I said, there has to be something in Hilchot Shechita that's going to support this. And, I, and so I looked at what the Rambam says about in the end of Ilchot Shechita. He takes a little bit of a different interpretation. He takes the other Shita. It's a machloket, whether they were allowed to eat meat or not eat meat, or whether they just weren't allowed to uh, do Shechita other than Korbanot. So the Rambam takes that view. But that itself, um, or the fact that an Oved Avodah Zohar, or anyone who's not actually a Jew, their Shechita doesn't, is not valid. Even if they're not an Oved Avodah Zohar, the Rambam says that there was a great fence that they made, that even a non-Jew who is not Oved Avodah Zohar, their shechita is nevela. Why? Because the idea is that it has to be a person who is part of the community of of De Hashem. Because what you're doing is you are designating the basar as, as, as something which is the vehicle of Avodat Hashem. So it's when you, once you have an idea and you, you, you look for it, you'll find uh, corroboration and a theme, a theme that's true should reverberate throughout the Torah. So I didn't find this. I'm going to tell the truth. I, I didn't find it um, explicitly in any particular source, but uh, I feel like the Torah, it's, like you said, it's such a strong uh, parallel and there are hints to it and there are allusions to it in so many different sources that it's hard to believe that maybe it was so obvious to them that they saw, they saw it unnecessary to mention. Um, and, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, I can say that I'm therefore just, uh, uh, you know, rediscovering what, what was already obvious to them. Uh, maybe, that's the, maybe that's the truth. Uh, it's interesting because we had, we had a Rabbi Foreman recently who, mm. and what he likes doing as well is, is looking at, at the Chumash, looking at themes. And, and he, he also presented a very convincing uh, sort of parallel. Once you see it, you can't, you know, you can't unsee it. Mm. And then, um, uh, you know, I sort of asked the same question. I'm like, uh, and and it was a similar answer in the sense of once you know why didn't the classical commentators pick up on this? And he also said it was quite original. So it's interesting because at the end of the day, he said when you sometimes can discover things, you know, and it's quite it's quite amazing. And then it, it's so convincing that it's 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 yeah. It's I'm familiar with his work. I'm, my 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 thought is though that what gives me what gives me confidence in it in in this in this interpretation is that there are so many sources also in rabbinic halacha mm-hmm. that fit so well with it. It must be that they saw this as well. Right. You know, I don't think that they didn't see it. If you're just looking at Torah Shebikhtav, like Rabbi Foreman is very original and very creative, and the Torah is infinite. There's no reason to think that he can't discover something that nobody saw before. There's no reason to think that. But a lot of times in his interpretations, he'll show you that one of the classical midrashim actually picked up on it, or one of the Mephoshim alluded to it in one way or another, and then that gives you a little bit more of a confidence in the validity. In my case, if it were not for the fact that there were Rishonim that allude to it, or there were Halachot that so clearly fit with it and, and bolster it, I wouldn't be um, necessarily as, as sure that it's what the Torah is saying. But I think the convergence of all those points of evidence suggests that 
they may perhaps thought of it as self-explanatory. I mean, it's in Sefer Vayikra, which is the Sefer of Avodat Hashem and Torah Kohanim, and we're Mamlechet Kohanim Begoy Kadosh, and therefore it's a no-brainer. And if I told them this whole shiur, they'd be like, oh, go back to first grade, you, don't, you didn't say anything original, right? That's the, That could be. Well, thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi, for that. Thank you. For me, and I'm sure many others, it's a whole fascinating new perspective on Kashrut. Uh, and our and our eating as a as a vehicle for Vodat Hashem, uh, and it's all been really eye opening. And um, I think it supplies us with a whole comprehensive, uh, sophisticated understanding of of these running themes we've touched on, like Tameh and Tahor and Terefa Nevela, and giving us a, a deeper understanding. And I'm sure it can help answer many questions that we might have had um, in informative, sure, and, and truly transformative. Um, uh, providing us with a, with a whole new lens. So uh, thank you so, so much. Uh, we look forward to having you again uh, yeah. and uh, wishing you Chodesh Tov to, to everybody. Uh, and Be'ezat Hashem, I guess in the next year we'll try to do a halachic topic is the, is the, is the goal, right? Be'ezat yeah, Be'ezat I mean, this, this has been amazing. So I feel if we could keep going on this, it would be up, up to you. It's, um, we'll, we'll be in touch. Thank right. you. Terrific. Thank you so much, everybody. And Chag Sameach.